This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Ukrainian journalist Ilya Pomonarenko. He is a reporter with the Kiev Independent and he's going to be talking to us about the very tense situation on Ukraine's border right now. You've probably heard people are quite worried that Russia is about to invade Ukraine. They've amassed more than 100,000 troops on the border at three different areas. They've put armoured vehicles down. It's not looking good. Let's listen to what he's got to say. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front. So last time we spoke, we spoke about how Russia at the start of the year were building up troops and then they kind of left and everyone was a bit puzzled. Nobody really knew what was happening now, though, it's looking a lot more serious. They've kind of done the same thing again and then some. And everyone's talking, is there going to be a war? Is Russia going to, well, is the war going to get hotter, right? It's already a war. But, you know, everyone's saying, is Russia going to invade? What's going on? Um, may maybe explain to us what is happening right now, because things are looking quite dodgy. Well, you were mentioning, you know, the first crisis in this year and uh, what we have now. Uh, everybody was puzzled and... Uh, Yes, right now, you know, the situation might be, might feel even more dangerous, but, you know, in general, it's yes and no. So, yes, everybody's afraid now. I mean, in terms of uh, media, politicians, uh, everybody's scared, to be honest. Yeah, we have this, we, like, it's, it's the second time in the year that we have this war scare. Uh, it's the second time in the year that I keep getting messages from my friends, I know, um, asking me, hey, man, do you think it's going to, there's going to be a big war? again so but with that said yeah yeah we, we do have this doomsday feeling again in kiev i mean once again we have the story that you know the kiev authorities they check the uh, air bomb shelters in the city again so we do have this you know doomsday atmosphere so everybody is a bit scared in this regard a bit nervous i would even say but on the other side you know what we have now is you know it's like like i said it's the second time we have the situation in this year alone. So back in the day, you know, the crisis was far less clear for us. You know, that back in the day, I mean, in April, in May, we had so many emotions. Everybody was so confused that, um, that you know, we, and we were actually diving into this, you know, panic board, something like that. So we, we were clearly fully short of, you know, rational thinking but and we had a lot of emotions that we had to we should have put aside to be honest right now it's the second time and you know even though it's it's acute it's sharp um but right now in general general audience general thinking suggests more rational you know calculations about this behind this so i i, I see this wipe you know this um in ukrainian media in expert community among politicians so Right now, it's far less emotional and more uh, more about thinking, you know, what's uh, calculating rationale behind this. So mm. right now, we are a bit more emotionally, a bit more prepared to this. Right. Uh, give us an idea of what's actually happened, like numbers. How many how many troops are they put on the border? What kind of equipment are they bringing in? What's, what's going on? Yeah, well, this is the funny story about the numbers because I keep getting 
questions from media outlets or from you know experts from the West, and they are kind of confused because you know, for instance, um, defense minister says Russians currently have um, around and in Ukrainian occupied territories something like ninety five thousand troops, um, like all combined uh, combined arms military force, so um, with air superiority, obviously, but at the same time. For instance, um, the Ukrainian military intelligence uh, have have their own statements and say we have more than one hundred thousand troops concentrated to and ready to attack. So there is a confusion between behind this. And you know, and meanwhile, we have media outlets saying that Russians could end up having more than um, one hundred seventy-five thousand troops uh, ready to be uh, to be thrown in battle. So. Yes, what we have in general, so I, you know, uh, my explanation is that, you know, it's Ukraine, it's a mess. So sometimes, you know, even between government officials, between different, you know, um, agencies, we have this, you know, confusion in terms of numbers. They mm. do not even have like a separate, just a single standalone statement of what's happening. So, but in general, I would say that, yes, what we're having right now is the concentration of uh, nearly 1,100 troops, um, combined arms concentrated mostly in uh, Russian territories that are close to, to Ukraine, for instance, the Voronezh Oblast, and also uh, um, the um, region, Russian regions close to Belarus, um, and also Crimea. Um, as far as, as we know, the Russians have uh, deployed eight additional um, uh, battalion tactical groups to, uh, to Crimea. And uh, so it's mostly about, you know, um, lots of, lots of, Pretty suspicious activities, and you know the buildup of uh, conventional military forces uh, close to our borders. But at the same time, you know what's what's really important about this is that, and you know many Western experts do see this, is that uh, you know we have this tendency of seeing these military movements being so demonstrative, being so in your face, uh, being so open to you know to intelligence, to um, to media uh, attention. And besides, you know, as uh, many Western uh, um, experts say, what they see um, in in these Russian Russian maneuvers uh, falls short of uh, many important indications of a of of, um, of an attack being prepared. For instance, they do not mobilize airborne forces um, or artillery at the level of brigade division, and after that, so they do not, for instance, create any strategic. Um, uh, any strategic reserves uh, that would be required uh, in uh, in the case of uh, all-out attack. So yes, yeah, so it's it's really about you know about a lot of emotions, a lot, a lot of about you know the war scare. But at the same time, yes, uh, I don't think that we have something that says that the attack is imminent. It is possible. It's always possible. I mean, but no indication. Nothing indicates. Uh, that they're gonna do this tomorrow, for instance, or tonight. Yeah, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I've, I looking at it, I felt the same. Like a lot of people were asking me, like, "What do you think?" And I said, "You know what? I just don't see it yet." But it does look fishy. Um, obviously, it's very tense. So if they're not like about to invade tomorrow or whatever, what, what do you think they're actually doing? Why are they doing this right now? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to pretty unpopular, probably, <laughs> opinion to Ukraine. Like I said, you know, this time around, it's more about you know calculation, calculations and thoughts rather than emotions and fear. Mm. So what I see behind this, you know, with all that said that we mentioned, so I consider this as the great 
a super effective intimidation campaign by the Kremlin because of many reasons, because of the reasons that we have mentioned that they they uh, pull pull troops in and out, you know, very, very in your face, very demonstratively. And because, you know, they always make sure that everybody sees this, this it, it gets maximum media attention. So I believe this is the, this is clearly the intimidation campaign uh, because, you know, as the uh, first crisis has demonstrated this, you know, this tactic of um, of bringing this war scare of intimidation, it's it has become a super effective political tool of of, um, of influence, mostly upon the West, to be honest. Mm. So, yeah. And besides, you know, if we, yeah, you know, we, we in Ukraine, we have this tendency uh, you know, sometimes people oppose me during you know interviews or uh, uh, clubhouse talks uh, in this regard. But you know, sometimes people oppose me, saying that you you are being too rational about you know Kremlin, um, about the, you know the Russian barbaric nature. But you know, you know, sometimes we in Ukraine, it's not even sometimes we often in Ukraine we tend to oversimplify you know the decision making process in in the Kremlin, and also over personalize you know Vladimir Putin's. Um, role in this regard and his these the uh, you know this the scale of his personal control and power and all, all of these things um you know we in many ways you know a, a ukrainian media reader lives in, in some car some some kind of a austin powers movie to be honest so it's <laughs> not yeah 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 I, I see that sometimes for instance uh just i'm asking well if they invade if they have an all-out invasion, if we wake up to the sound of rolling thunder in, in the middle of the night because of Russian missiles. Uh, so what's the um what's this what's the um strategy? What's the what's their plan to invade to possibly destroy the Ukrainian armed forces in a quick way and then to um take key cities under control and uh you know to and to force the Ukrainian political leadership into some sort of uh, uh political deal, maybe. But I mean, what's the, uh, I mean, what's the price that they have to pay for such an operation? Lest we forget that you know Ukraine is not Georgia, and it's not yeah. Chechnya. Definitely, it's a huge country that is as huge as France, and uh, it hosts something like forty million people. Uh, I'm not even uh, talking about you know uh, the Ukrainian military being in way better shape. That what we had in uh, back in 2014. Oh yeah, it's like decades ahead now, right? Oh yes, it is. It is still flawed. You know, uh, it's still a mess. But you know, the military is not only about you know this flawed system, uh, but also about you know the people, the people mm. fighting. Oh, believe me, these people. You know, you, I should not. You should not underestimate the uh, the military that's is capable of sustaining the line for eight, seven, seven, eight years uh, in Donbass. I mean, holding the line and without getting demoralized or uh, um, drifting apart. I mean, without any hope of, of any military victory in, in the future. So they they keep the system clean. And besides, you know, I would not recommend uh, underestimating um, the military that, that is fighting for their own homes, I mean, on their own soil. So this is not going to be a, something that is that is easy. This is, you know, this task, uh, invading Ukraine, um, it would require a giant military operation. It's like Iraq, probably, or even the scale of World War II. So it means that this is going to be like a super expensive uh, operation in terms of, you know, political costs, economical costs, 
um, casualties, manpower. So, and we're not even talking about the Western reaction. Let's talk about the Western reaction a little bit because, you know, I, I've been kind of critical online of the US a little bit because it, it seems to me like the US is, is almost lulling Ukraine into a kind of false sense of security. They're like, we will definitely not allow this, that, and the third. And then the other day they were like, well, if Russia does something, we're going to really, really reinforce the, you know, the bases surrounding Ukraine. Essentially, they said, yeah, we're not actually going to help them in their country. Um, not, not saying like, oh, you know, Ukraine relies on the US, but certainly it's a big help for them. Um, what do you think? Well, I, I'm thinking about this too. You know, right now we're having probably uh, Putin and Biden are just about to meet yeah. um, and talk about this thing. So we'll see what, what this brings. But yeah, in general... You know, we have this general feeling uh, in Ukraine about the West that the Western reaction is pretty weak in this regard. Yeah. I mean, I mean seriously. Um, you know, there's a... Um, yeah, of course, they contemplate um, you know, sanctions and sending more weapons, but they are not what Biden says, what other leaders say. They are not concrete. They are not certain in their... Um, in sending messages to Putin in public, you know, in public space, at least in public space. Yeah, they they just have just started moving in the right direction because they have promised uh, to impose crushing sanctions on Russian elite, um, you know, like SWIFT thing to switch Russia off the, off, uh, the SWIFT system. The banking thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the banking thing. That's So I believe the only option, the, the only way to effectively deter Russia is to show resolve, show... show uh, readiness to um, to help Ukraine, not in terms of you know issuing their concerns, but also doing some practical things, sending troops, sending weapons, um, promising to switch um, uh, switch all the Russian billionaires off their billion billions in the West, because this is the key thing, you know, because you know no matter what they say uh, on the on the TV TV news, but you know. The Kremlin inner circle, they prefer to, you know, live in the West, keep the families in the West, yeah. keep the money in the West, uh, properties in the West. And meanwhile, making money in Russia with all the corruption, you know, and, and all the flawed systems. So this is the key leverage that the West has right now. Because, like I said, nobody wants, nobody in the Kremlin wants to um, say goodbye to the billions in uh, all the villas in Italy, just because you know somebody wants to um, resurrect the Russian Empire of 1914. So you know, like I said, you know, we often tend to oversimplify, you know, over let's like oversimplify the whole the whole situation and to pretend that we're living in some some kind of Lord of the Rings universe. It's not that simple, people. Um, so what is this is what I'm saying here in Ukraine often. Um, you know, our enemy is evil, but they're not stupid. And, you know, they have to balance between their goals, actual goals, and the, the price that they would pay. So with yeah, all that said, I do not believe. Stupid. Yeah, they definitely. So why can't we win if they are so stupid? Yeah, I... I... I think the West has a real issue with this at the minute. They kind of create the Russia is the boogeyman. Everything bad happens in the West is somehow secretly Russia. And it's like, I agree with you. Like, okay, Russia, uh, like Putin, the Kremlin is specifically devious, but definitely not stupid. I agree with you there. And I just, I think maybe the full on invasion would be a pretty stupid thing to do. Like you said, it would cost a fortune. Yes. Politically, we're not even talking, you know, Economic reaction picture economically, you know, the Russian economy being shattered. Yeah. 
and they can do that. And besides, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure that the West will will would do this because you know um, it's just a, like a uh, like a beginning level estimates that you know, a full a f- like a full invasion would trigger the micro crisis of at least two three million Ukrainians fleeing West from their cities. But I believe that's that's way way too optimistic. I believe you know we in Donbass we had the local local war, pretty local war in bus, and it drove at least one million people uh, from the region uh, in Ukraine and in Russia too. So mm-hmm. a, a full, uh, like a full-time operation, the size of World War II would drive 10 million, I believe. Just imagine what's going to be uh, on the Polish border. So the West definitely doesn't need uh, like a Vietnam-scale massacre here in Europe. So they will have to do this. I mean, um, just killing the Russian economy, and everybody knows this. I'm pretty sure about this, and you know, even even in Russia, many analysts are talking about this. That you know, other than you know, straight straight con- conquest of Ukraine, they have so many instruments of influence. And besides, uh, what's the uh, what's the actual price that they can get for such a uh, f- you know, for such an effort? I mean, seriously, um, they they. They have it hard to even sustain Donbass and Crimea. You know, they spend five billion dollars a year on Donbass alone, just just to sustain the uh, the uh, administration and you know the military thing. So, but imagine what's what's what what's going to be the the price for the whole of Ukraine? I mean, the or the much of Ukraine. Um, so, and uh, in the situation of uh, international isolation and economic sanctions. So, no people. Let's be less emotional, more rational about this. Yeah, I, I agree with you. One one thing I can see being more likely, though, is, you know, the Russian-backed separatists being kind of pushed forward in the east. I mean, we're seeing um, in certain areas, I think it's... Dukachevs. Yeah, Dukachevs, there you go. Yeah, like there, that area specifically is seeing a lot, a lot of um, shelling at the moment. Do you think it's more likely that, you know, that war with the separatists is going to get a lot hotter? You know, there are a couple of moments, by the way, uh, Dokuchayevsk is the city that is just next to my hometown in Donbass. You know, I'm really, really? in Donbass, so it's just yeah. a next big city, more or less big city on the other side of the front line from my hometown, Volnavaha. So, yeah, I know the city, I know the area, the area, the terrain is super complicated for mm. hostilities. So what I'm thinking about, you know, this, uh, you know, people, you know, it's uh, what we are talking here in Ukraine is not necessarily about, you know, like, all-out war, like World War II thing with uh, Russians, you know, taking Kiev or Odessa. We're also considering uh, scenarios for, for instance, like local escalation, similarly, mm-hmm. similar to what we had back in 2014. So that might be on the table, for instance, everything is possible right now. But uh, if we are thinking serious about this, um, first thing is that, you know, the local militants, you know, majority of them are locals. Uh, like local guys, um, uh, like on on the uh, low level, I mean, per- the soldiers, personnel, maybe sergeants. You know, uh, gone are the days when uh, you know the militant forces were formed by you know romantics uh, dreaming of uh, like a great Russia or something, or being uh, super evil about you know Ukraine, hating Ukraine. So many of them, well, these warlords. They have been assassinated or they killed in right Motorola, so, Givi, all of them. Yeah, guys. yeah, yeah. The times of them 
have gone dead and gone. It's it's not about you know the majority of um, of uh, you know Russian military Russian militant forces are just uh, you know regular guys that have no chances to leave the occupied territories, and so they go and uh, serve just to get some money and to sustain their families. And mm. um, as we can, as we call them. Um, the people of 15,000 rubles, because this is how much they get a month, which is something like, I don't know, 300 bucks, maybe. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's the what's the rate right now. So they, they are clearly not motivated to fight. I mean, it's not 2014 anymore. So they just stay there to, to hold the line, to do their job and get the money. I mean, most of them. So the, uh, we do not, I do not expect them to, to be willing to die for you know to, to Donbass if, if 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 you know in terms of you know huge escalation. So I would not count on that if I were what the Russian military leader. But on the other side, again, you know, uh, sometimes when people call me, um, people say that I'm too rational about this. But then again, what if they launch um, a sort of um, escalation in the bus to get something like the city of Mariupol, the port city in the south, or, or some other points. I see no point in that just because, you know, like I said, we, do not, we should not underestimate the, our enemy being rational about their goals and things that they need. Uh, let's get back to the history of the Battle of the Balsava, uh, after which uh, we had this second peace uh, agreement signed in Minsk. That was early... February, February 2015. So as we all know, um, in February, politicians signed the ceasefire agreement in Minsk, but the hostilities uh, continued. I remember that day, you know, uh, the uh, ceasefire was supposed to, to be announced on midnight and something like, after something like 30 minutes of, of silence, hostilities resumed again. It's like 30 minutes maybe. Why did they do this? Just because they needed um, the city of Debalsa to be seized and taken under uh, under, uh, under their control just because it's the uh, like a giant railroad hub. You gotta you gotta have this. Yeah. Uh, if you if you need to sustain the logistics uh, and also the connections in, uh, with Russia and between you know two regions, the Donetsk and Luhansk. So they were rational about their uh, their necessity to take this. So they went on. Right now, I see no point in moving forward, given the uh, the ultimate goal, which is to uh, inflict an, an um, uncurable wound on Ukraine that uh, dries out our economy and also blocks our, our uh, rapprochement to NATO. So right now we have no chances of joining NATO because of you know, occupied territories and stuff. So I see no point in, in them. So back in the day in 2014, 15, when the army was disorganized, um, when the whole political system was shattered because of revolution, you know, we all know the story. Mm. So they stopped at doing what they did back in the day in those eight years, like a, uh, like a proxy invasion, the use of uh, separatists, of uh, mercenaries, and the very limited uh, employment of uh, regular military forces when they had to. It's Ilovaisk, the Battle of the Balsava, for instance. And back in, uh, in those days, they, uh, they deliberately decided to leave some space, you know, for some kind of a deal um, with the West, probably in the future. It's all about Crimea. They were pretty delicate about this. 
just because you know they cannot afford going way too much in this so they had to leave some space for a deal which is what they do so back back eight years ago they could not afford you know season the whole of ukraine so now it's even less affordable to them so that's why i do not believe we should expect anything anything bigger than that what could have been done and what they could afford has been done in 2014 and 15. But that said, I keep talking, I keep saying this, I keep talking about this in interviews that no matter what happens, we in Ukraine, we need to keep building the best military possible in mm. absolutely any case. This is the 100% strategy for us. Yeah. Um, there was this weird situation where Zelensky, you know, the prime minister of Ukraine, he was saying, president rather, he, he was saying that Russia was plotting some kind of coup, right? And they're like arrested. Like, what? What is that about? Well, you know, this guy Zelensky. Zelensky is a guy. is kind of a guy who loves to be presented as president. You yeah, know? he loves this leadership. He loves his this glory. He loves being uh, shown on TV. But he's not not a super huge fan of working as a president. You know? <laughs> yeah. So this is all about him, I and mean, I meet him all the time. I mean, so. It just screams this matter. He enjoys being a president, but not working as a president. So yes, and besides, he is very prone to influence of of, uh, of his entourage. Uh, for instance, Andriy Yermak, his chief of staff, uh, he's he always helps some some kind of a guy who whispers on his ear um, things that not many people can understand. So uh, probably you know he's very prone or to to uh, you know to rumors. Let's let's put it so. And he definitely did the stupid thing by saying this aloud during the press conference in late November. So everybody was confused, just like you are. <laughs> so uh, he promised he he not promised he but he declared that the uh, a coup might happen on December first. Obviously, nothing happened. But there were protests, though, right? Like anti. Yeah. But not not coup, right? They were organic. Definitely not. Well, that's that's almost indistinguishable from what's <laughs> yeah, happening yeah. in 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 downtown Kiev in any given day. So we are we are full time protesters, you know. In Kiev. yeah, just go to Maidan, you will see. I mean, uh, it's been quite a while since I visited Maidan. I mean, several months maybe. So I'm not much of a goer uh, to Maidan, but I saw. I think. I saw the, the um, rallies of uh, entrepreneurs uh, protesting against taxes, I guess, or some uh, tax regulations, and probably in summertime. And uh, I recently visited the Maidan Square again, and I saw the same thing on the same banners, <laughs> still rallying for the same thing. So, you know, it's just not people about, pissed you know, off with the government, basically. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Yeah, I, like I said, we are pretty full-time protesters so no i think that's great about ukraine actually like you guys yes. don't let them rest you know don't let them rest for a second yeah but to put it shortly sometimes yeah sometimes Zelensky says and does stupid things that a vice leader should be uh should be you know silent about i mean yeah and uh so he, he gets us so many so many uh, reasons to ridicule him sometimes that's <laughs> You know, no, no sincere mind can understand sometimes him. Yeah. All right, mate. Um, I know you're in a rush, but do you want to um, explain your new project uh, briefly? Because we got a lot of listeners on here, and I think a lot of people would like to hear about the Kiev Independent. Obviously, it came off the back of the problems with the Kiev Post. 
So what happened? Like back in 2018, um, we we got a, a new publisher. Um, his name is Adnan Kivan, and he is one of the top constructive tycoons in this country. He is the top construction um, developer in the city of Odessa, you know, uh, the southern port. So apparently the guy wanted to, you know, to expand his business in Kiev. So first thing he did was uh, he purchased a newspaper, which is us, the Kiev Post, one of the most respected um, and basically the only large English language um, publication in Ukraine that is pretty popular among you know, diplomatic missions, politicians, lawmakers, uh, the military. So yeah, that was something that we perceived as his image, image purchase, let's put it that way. So we knew that the new owner has uh, also, he owns uh, Channel 7 in, in, uh, in Odessa and also a news website that are absolutely not independent. So they basically serve serve his business interests and his personal ego. So we had a deal with him. We had him only papers saying that I promise to keep the editorial independence of Kyiv Post untouched, not to meddle, not to interfere. Uh, so uh, I do understand that I can't, um, I can't run the Kyiv Post newspaper, which is praised for its independence and its quality. Uh, the same way I, I manage my TV channels, for instance, in, in, in back in Tesla. Mm. So we were ready to fight for this independence because this is the way we sustain. Because without this independence, we would lose support from uh, embassies, from politicians, because we were pretty popular and people knew that they can trust us. Without this, no way. But, you know, the next three years went, went on with the, uh, you know, several crises, as I, as I put it this way, uh, over the publisher's desire or, his, or, or him being not happy about what things that we write about this editorial independence. So he often would often complain that what we write, I mean, we were being, for instance, critical of uh, authorities. Um, so, so he would often complain that we write things that hurt him and hurt this newspaper. So he was not happy about this. So we know for sure that, for instance, the prosecutor general of Ukraine, uh, once upon a time, she called uh, our chief editor Brian Bonner to to her office and uh, also slammed him for what we're writing about her. So we had this sort of pressure. Uh, upon ourselves and upon the uh, owner. But uh, on November 8th, that was just nothing but a usual Monday. We came to, to the office and I'll, I'll, I'll put it with my own perspective. So just a Monday morning and I'm trying to, um, to put a story on the COVID situation. We have this like a daily routine stories about you know what, what's happening with the COVID things. So uh, that was my day to, to put a story. So I did a story. I'm trying to save it um, from the news, uh, Kiev Post uh, website dashboard. So I'm trying to do this, but I can't for some reason. And the website stopped, stopped listening to me, stopped responding to me for some reason. I, I believe that was a glitch, but that wasn't a glitch. So mm -hmm. we were stripped of control of our website quietly. You know, on that day, the morning meeting starts, and um, what Brian Bonner does is 
that is, he says that, guys, sorry, I did what I could, but this newspaper is no more. Um, I've, I was given an order to shut this, this newspaper down. No printed issues, no pictures, no stories, no nothing. St- starting from today, you guys are all fired, including myself. Jesus. Starting from today. And you got to leave the, prom- the premises, the office, uh, starting from today. Guys, sorry. I did what I could, but I failed. So, yes, uh, everybody was fired without notice, without a warning. And uh, the publisher presented this as um, that his desire to relaunch the Kiev Post uh, to make it bigger and better. And uh, that's why he fired all the, uh, <laughs> all the journalists and all the stuff. I mean, not excluding anyone. So it totally makes sense, right? So we did try to save the newspaper. We had two rounds of, of negotiations with the, with the, um, with the uh, publisher. On, on the phone, I mean, the, the whole newsroom, the journalists talking to him over the phone. Two instances of that. So we, we what we suggest is that if he's not happy about us, about the pressure from authorities because of us, he can um, either sell the newspaper to a willing buyer and we will find a willing buyer for him. Or he can... Um, let us use the brand because the, you know the brand is super precious in this regard. The Kiev Post brand is super, super popular, popular among you know the people that make decisions. So you know what what was behind this brand is twenty six years of uh, of hard work of journalism and also good name, you know the brilliant reputation in Ukraine. So we decided we wanted to save it no matter what. The answer was no. The guy wanted to keep exploiting the brand um, and also to hire another journalist, uh, like probably more um, more obedient journalists, um, but he wanted to keep using the brand. So we failed to persuade him uh, and the fact that this is going to be like a disaster, this is going to be a scandal, which it was, mm. a worldwide scandal. Um, and this is going to be a huge reputational blow upon him, which it was. Uh, so we failed to do that. So what we did is we decided to stay together, like something like 30 journalists uh, from all around the world, the United States, Britain, Japan, Ukraine, Russia, France. Uh, like I said, the young team of, uh, of people from all around the world. We decided to stay together, to stay loyal to the, the, these values that we were trained with and to establish something new because we had tremendous support from um, from the audience, I'm just I'll give you a couple of of, uh, of uh, statistics. Um, within seven days, we launched the uh, Patreon thing, mm-hmm. and within something like six or seven days, we got more than five hundred patrons, which is exceptional for Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, most of Ukrainian independent media they have something like 80, 90, 100 patrons, and they're happy about this. We got more than I believe that's close to six hundred right now within less than a week. Um, or we also launched the GoFundMe thing. Um, we also crowdfunded something like 10,000 pounds sterling within five, six days. That's excellent. Just like that. Yeah. And yeah, just like that. You know, we, I mean, it's been almost a month. Yes. Uh, almost, uh, yeah, almost, almost a month since we were fired, but we keep giving interviews each and every day from all across the world. We lose count at 200 as we were counting stories about us. 
from all across the world. So, so the, the Kiev Independent, right? You've, you've all come together, you've formed this new thing. Um, it's basically based on the kind of ethics and the, the ethos and open reporting that you had at the, the, the Kiev Post, but now yeah. you know, you're doing it independently. Yeah, uh, this is exactly what happens. Uh, even, I, I'm not sure what the date, but uh, I think a week after the, uh, the whole thing started, we had a story, I wrote a story for um, the British Journal, um, the New Statesman, I guess the, is the name. Yeah. So, and the story, the headline simply says what we believe in, just we could not save the Kiev Post, but we can save its values, which is exactly what's happening. Well, good luck with it, man. It's really good to hear that, um, you know, people in Ukraine care about proper independent reporting still. Um, where can people uh, where can people find, you know, your new project and where can they follow your work? We have a full-fledged website right now. It's it's just kievindependent.com. So it's kievindependent.com and it's Kiev spelled the proper way. K-Y-I-V, not K-I-E-V. Yeah, yeah. All right, man, we'll definitely put that out and I hope people come through. Sure, thanks. Thanks for your time, man. I'll speak to you soon. That was journalist Ilya Ponomarenko talking about the possible invasion that everyone seems to be talking about right now where everyone's worried that Russia might soon invade Ukraine. As we said in the piece, kind of both of us agree we don't think they're actually going to. Maybe we'll be completely wrong, who knows, you can never really predict things with war, especially when countries like Russia are involved. Uh, it's a very tense situation either way. Um, like Ilya said, check his uh, workout at the kievindependent.com or if you want to follow him on Twitter, his Twitter is IA Ponomarenko, so that's IA P-O-N-O-M-A-R-E-N-K-O. Check him out. He's keeping everybody updated on the situation on the front lines and the political situation in Ukraine right now. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. That is the main way we make money. We have been censored off of YouTube. We're not allowed to advertise there, despite some of our documentaries having more than two and a half million views. We make no money from that. We are not allowed to promote our stuff on Instagram either. We can't make any money that way. So the way we make money because we refuse corporate investment is on the Patreon. Patreon.com slash popular front. There's loads of extras there. Five pounds a month, 10 pounds a month, whatever. You get access to the community discord. Uh, monthly bonus episodes that are only on the Patreon. There's all sorts there. Check it out. Patreon.com slash Popular Front. Or if you want to support us in another way via crypto or whatever, go to popularfront.co slash support. You will see all of the details there. This episode was sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop, uh, coffee business, selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 South West Bond Avenue, 97239. The episode was also sponsored by our friends at Grind Core House. That's a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA, one in South, one in West. Find them on socials at Grind Core House. The episode was also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda from around the world. You can buy prints at propagandopolis.com. Use promo code popularfront10 for 10% off. If you want to advertise with us and you're ethical, you're independent, um, let us know. You can email me at hanrahan at pm.me. So H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N 
at pm.me. We have over uh, 3 million unique downloads. We get a lot, a lot of listeners. So if you're interested and you think that will match up, drop me a line. If you want to follow us on social media, uh, watch our documentaries, youtube.com slash popularfront, Instagram at popular.front, Twitter at popularfront underscore. Um, Just check our website out at popularfront.co. Remember as well to follow our backup account on the Instagram because we're threatened with being deleted every single week, basically because we show the news through an unfiltered um, way and we believe that it's it's important to show the world the the real aspects of war and conflict as it is. So follow the backup at popularfront underscore. Uh, Music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by sam black check sam's music out at samblackpf.com sam is a massive part of popular front without him we wouldn't be able to do this so definitely check his music out share it everything like that samblackpf.com thank you very much to the higher tier patrons without you this would not be possible i mean it um thanks for staying with us all of this time really do appreciate it there's big things coming next year um thank you to ra champagne anarchist Watt, Elise Middlefart, Jess, Lewis or Louis, uh, David McManus, Joaquin Williamson Holt, Yudoye Travis, check him out, he's a comedian, I was looking on his uh, Instagram the other day, he's very funny, check him out, Yudoye Travis, uh, thank you to Tom Petrie, James Leons, Kate, Lisa Milgram, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, I'm dying, I'm really ill, apologies, um, Bradley Davies, Brendan Crave, Pete Hesher, RX, A. Nicole, Travis Lieberman, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Dunn, LD50 Seattle, <coughs> excuse me, MJ, K. Glitter Vulcan, Meredith Waters, Bethany Swoveland, Adam H., Carante, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Michael O'Connor, Zach Picard, Todd Cravens, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ian Froese, James Cully, Tynan Daly, Ethan, Fitz Madrid, Ed Coulthard, Mike Barone, Ben, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Giorgio Arani, uh, DR, Trey Nance, Amy R, Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Me, Nawaiz, Nate Van Dor, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, <coughs> sorry, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, JL, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarek, Dan Dunham, Fletcher, Diana Govanek, Lawrence Abrahams, uh, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin at Shady Project, Ryan Sandercock and Moritz Zumbul. Thank you all so much. Really, really appreciate it. Without you lot, this would not be moving as fast as it is. Trust me, next year we're doing a lot. It's going to be really good. Thanks. Thanks.